AWRI Decanted, a podcast from the Australian Wine Research Institute. Here, grape and wine scientists reveal their latest discoveries and meet the producers who are applying the research in their businesses. Irrigation. For many vineyards, it's fundamental to their existence. It's also a significant part of their costs. So, if someone said, we use half the water of other comparable vineyards, many growers would probably want to know more. G'day, I'm Drew Radford, and that someone is Kim Chalmers from Chalmers Wines and Nursery, a family with a remarkable history within the Australian wine sector. To find out how they achieve these savings, we're joined for this decanted podcast by Kim Chalmers. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. Kim, we want to talk about irrigation efficiency in vineyards, but I'm a little confused because you're a musician by trade, aren't you? (laughs) Absolutely. So I actually studied composition at um, Adelaide Uni at the Con and, uh, and ended up going down the rabbit hole of electronic music and worked there for a while and, yeah, really enjoyed that before I was drawn back into the family business of vines, grapes and wine. Well, I'm glad you made that connection there that it is a family business and it was a significant operation. I understand one of the largest around, if not the largest family one. Yeah, at the time that we sold that original farm, it was about 600 hectares. So it was quite a large family-owned vineyard. There's there's bigger ones around, but um, it was also quite diverse because we had about 50 or 60 different grape varieties and, you know, multiple clones and we were running the nursery from there as well, obviously. So we had one of the largest Pinot Grigio plantings in the world at one stage. Wouldn't be anymore, I don't think, that site. I just want to ask you about that nursery because you were very focused on bringing in varieties that worked well with the climate, from my understanding. We still operate a nursery now. So um, Bruce and Jenny, my parents, uh, operated Chalmers Nurseries from 1989 through to 2008 when we sold that the large farm down near Euston. And um, during that time, you know, we estimated we probably over those years grafted or produced, propagated around 30 million grapevines. So... At a real rough back of the envelope calculation, that, you know, might be even 10 to 15% of the planted vineyard area in Australia. So big nursery and mostly conventional varieties. In fact, through the 90s and 2000s, the majority of the vines they were producing were from just a handful of varieties. And we've got 62 GIs in Australia and they all have Shiraz, you know. So Bruce and Jenny were interested in also investing back into the industry through those years and um, did a lot of work on uh, vine health and also diversifying um, opportunities for growers in Australia by introducing new planting materials. So some new clones of varieties that were already here like Nebbiolo and Sangiovese and even Malbec, but lots of new varieties as well that weren't in Australia yet. Things like Nera Davila and uh, Sagrantino Alienico. They might have existed somewhere in some random nuclear collection, but they weren't being produced here as wines and things. And gee, hasn't that changed in the last 20 years? I understand that your family has a very strong sustainability focus. I'm just trying to get my head around that a little bit because in your bio, I read something about you training with Al Gore, former US Vice President, as a climate project presenter. 
what actually is that and how did that come about? Look, um, it was an amazing experience and, you know, what I learned through that experience I use, you know, every day in what we do at work but in also, you know, communicating with people and whatnot. But um, around the time of the mid-2000s, we were sort of a good way into the millennium drought here and people like Al Gore and, you know, obviously the IPCC were putting out some pretty big reports then that were stating the facts around climate change and it was starting to get a lot more evident for the general public about you know, we need to take this seriously. And Al Gore released that movie, The Inconvenient Truth, which touched a lot of people with his version of the story that may not have paid that much attention to the issue before. And part of what he was trying to do with that is just to reach more people with the science and the facts in a way that made sense to them. So rather than being bamboozled by the science or confused or doubtful by the way the message was coming across, he was wanting people to understand the basics and really be clear about what the truth of climate change is. And by creating the Climate Project, which is now called the Climate Reality Project, it's about educating people to go out. It's a grassroots sort of movement, educating people to go out into their own communities and talk about climate change. So, you know, it's lawyers, it's doctors, it's single mums, it's people up the street, it's school teachers, it's young people, it's old people, it's it's really was about getting a diverse cross-section of the community and in lots of different countries, in lots of different languages and people from all sorts of backgrounds to talk to their community and their peers about climate change and actually rather than pontificate from the top down or use your celebrity voice, it was about hearing it from your neighbour or your friend at work or whatever else. So. I was one of the first people in the world to be trained about how to take that message around to your community and help spread understanding of what climate change is and the science and debunk some of the sceptical myths out there and really get people understanding that the time to act is now. So what a shame it's where, you know, nearly 20 years down the track and we're only still arguing about acting, which is, you know, not the topic of conversation today, but it was an amazing experience. And, you know, I grew up on a farm in a family who really respect the environment. And, you know, whilst we are farmers, which some people think probably have in some ways less regard, I think actually farmers really are in touch with the earth and with nature and with weather and seasons. And they are probably have some of the highest regard for the environment. And of course, you know, want to look after it because it looks after us. So, it just seemed natural to be involved in doing whatever we can through our farming practices, but also through volunteering and educating and giving back to the community to try and help raise awareness. You certainly are putting back into the environment via your farm because I understand you have selected varieties and also work the vineyard in certain ways, which we'll drill down into to such an extent that you actually use half of the amount of water to irrigate the vineyard. How's that possible? <laughs> well, that is a nice uh, figure to be able to say we use half. Obviously, it is seasonally dependent. Sometimes it's less than half. Sometimes it's a bit more than half. But we've been able to dramatically reduce our water use by applying a number of techniques, but also by selecting you know, what varieties we grow and how we set up our vineyard. So, our um, focus with wine grape production now and where we've got vineyards in a couple of pretty warm areas up here in the Murray-Darling and also in the northern end of Heathcote. So, you know, cold winters but not huge amount of natural rainfall and still pretty hot summers down there. So 
our whole philosophy is looking at varieties, matching varieties sort of symbiotically to their site by choosing varieties which are going to thrive in the conditions you're going to plant them in rather than struggle. So they require less hand-holding, I suppose. So, you know, reducing your inputs but also reducing your environmental impact, hopefully through that. So we focus on working with varieties like, say, Neradavalo is a good example because lots of people are used to seeing that around now. It's become a thing in Australia as a variety and we're used to seeing it on wine lists when we introduced Naradavala and Bruce and Jenny brought it in in you know around the year 2000 it wasn't existing in Australia yet so every Naradavala vine in Australia and wine in Australia has come from that vine one vine that they brought through quarantine and has now become a nation of vineyards but it's become so popular because it's massively drought tolerant very hardy in hot conditions And, you know, a lot of Australia's wine-growing regions are on the hot end, Um, and not only inland irrigated areas, premium regions as well are hot and dry in some of Australia's most famous wine-growing regions. So by looking towards working with varieties like that or something like Fiano, which has really thick skins and, and, you know, high natural acidity and things like that, you can make these wines that are the style you want to achieve by choosing the right variety for your conditions. So for us, you know, both of our vineyards are irrigated. Obviously, Murray Darling relies very heavily on irrigation and uh, the average applied to grapes up here is somewhere around seven to seven and a half megalitres a hectare. And during the millennium drought, we were able to get down to, you know, around three megs a hectare, three to four. But our average use when it's not (laughs) massive water restrictions and huge drought conditions would be somewhere between four and five megalitres a hectare. And, you know, in an extreme dry year between five and six and sometimes under four. So it's not just the varieties, but they do make a big difference. You mentioned there Fiano, and I was doing a bit of reading, and and I saw a line from you saying that, well, it's the thickest skin that's really key to it it, it being better suited to the climate. Is is that the case? There's a whole number of physiological characteristics that make a difference in hot climate viticulture, and that's what we kind of hone in on when we're looking for a variety that might work. So the key one, I think, and top of the list for charmers is high natural acidity. So you're looking for a variety that comes with naturally high acidity. That is more to do with wine quality than um, viticultural performance in the vineyard, but it means that you're able to make these wines in hotter climates with less water and things like that that are actually more capable of ageing and and can have a bit more finesse and a bit more structure and freshness and interest. So that's top of the list for wine quality. But in terms of viticultural performance, you're looking for drought tolerance. So that's the ability for the vine to grow with limited water. And usually that's fairly directly linked with vigour. So if you've got a very high vigour variety, it can usually survive with less water. Then there's heat tolerance. Now, often people just associate drought and heat tolerance as the same thing, but they are slightly different. So 
Heat tolerance is the physical ability of the grapes and the fruit to withhold those extreme high temperatures. So that's the foliage standing up to sunburn, the fruit standing up to sunburn and desiccation and things like that. So in the eyes of traditional winemaking sort of law, you would say that smaller buried varieties are going to make better wine because of the skin to flesh ratio and all that sort of stuff and complexity and intensity. But, you know, in warm climate viticulture, bigger buried varieties do better because those bigger berries are more hydrated and they're more able to withstand those heat spikes and high temperatures. So it's converse to say Burgundian, you know, winemaking teachings, but you're actually going to end up with better wine with bigger berried varieties in warm climates sometimes and things like that. So you have to change your thinking, you have to look at things a little bit differently. So drought tolerance, heat tolerance, then you've got obviously things like your thickness of skins, looseness of bunches and things like that that can help the vine to, you know, the bunches not to overheat and the thick skins also are a benefit in terms of sustainability because those varieties are often less susceptible to disease. So you don't need to spray as many chemicals in the vineyard, fungicides and things like that because they're much hardier in terms of resisting those things naturally because of their physiological attributes of skin thickness, etc. The other thing to look for with climate change performance is, you know, the ripening time. So we're also looking for varieties that are either really early ripening or usually quite late ripening are beneficial because often our hot, hot summers, you know, the heat waves happen in that sort of late Jan, early Feb type time when the grapes, and if the grapes are just getting ripe around then, you can get sugar racing and out of balance fruit and less wine quality or even cook the grapes if they're close to ripeness and you're getting those 40 plus degree days consecutively. So something that comes off in, you know, late Jan or early, early Feb or something that's not ripe until late March or early April, which is not even really fully through Verizon in that period when the heat waves are coming, is a benefit in terms of wine quality in hot climates. So they're all the things that you can apply in terms of a vinifera variety that you select to work with in that type of environment. But of course, I'd be remiss of me as a a nursery person to not actually mention, of course, that the rootstock choice is so important, as important as your vinifera choice in that regard, because you can build in drought tolerance and ripening time and all these other sorts of things via the rootstock you select as well. Kim, you mentioned earlier about irrigation. I'd just like to ask you a little bit about that. In a previous podcast, we interviewed Mark Skews, who's researching irrigation practices. How do you work in your vineyards? I mean, is it an even approach across the vineyards or some areas more, some areas less? What's the approach? Look, obviously Heathcote and Merbein are are different. Different levels need to be applied and different strategies need to be applied, different soil type, different climate, etc. But there's a couple of things we do. Firstly, structurally, when we set up the vineyard, we set up our rows east-west orientation. So the sun's going overhead of the row and you, you don't have one side or the other of the row that's being unevenly exposed, which is important. We use drip irrigation in all our vineyards. So the irrigation is being applied directly under vine and we actually don't water the mid-row areas at all. So we we have a a bare earth mid-row. We may plant a cover crop if it's going to be a wet season, but we are deliberately not actually irrigating in the mid-row. We're irrigating just in the the undervine area, you know, a strip about a metre wide, which is where the majority of the vine roots are all located. And then the scheduling, 
you know, regime is really important. In peak summer, we're irrigating daily, but only just enough for what the plant needs. So if you think about, it's a bit like having a pot plant, you know, you're just giving it only what it needs. So you're not pushing any water down past the root zone. You're not wasting any water at all. The vine is taking up every single drop of that water. Up until recently, we were irrigating at night as well to reduce evaporation, but we've actually just put in solar PV at all our vineyards to run our pumps. So now, of course, we're running our irrigation during the day to maximise solar, reduce our carbon emissions. And, you know, that does change the evaporation rate a little bit, but the benefit outweighed the loss there. So through winter, we're just doing one or two irrigations that ramps up throughout spring and then ramps down in autumn until we have leaf fall. But this thing of applying only what the plant needs each day is a huge, huge part of the difference because you're not doing one or two big waters a week where you're actually watering. You're actually watering past the root zone and actually not taking up and using all of that water. But we also have a really good um, regime of pumping um, organic carbon back into the soil. So we're applying composted cow manure annually, pretty liberally, and using um, compost and mulch as well to reduce evaporation and water loss from the soil. So the undervine area where the, all the feeder roots and everything are directly undervine is when you dig in the soil, it's quite black. And for those of you who've seen photos of the Murray Darling, you know, it's that red, pale red, sandy soil. So, you know, when you realise how much carbon and, and organic matter is actually in that undervine area, it's really important. So we do use herbicide because we like to keep the weeds down to save water. And so, you know, we'd love to be organic, but it is one of those things where you have to choose what's the most efficient and what's the most sustainable way forward. And so drawing water out of the river and, and paying for it and whatever to water weeds, it makes no sense. So we only use a... Um, a knockdown herbicide that's non-residual so it doesn't damage that microflora in the soil at all whatsoever and we've got a really good population of microflora in the soil and in the canopy we do all wild ferments with the fruit that we harvest from these vineyards and we have very healthy ferments as well so we're looking after the environment while saving water because all that carbon gives the soil much more potential to hold that water long enough for the vines to take it all up so you're really reducing your requirement heavily by applying those couple of ideas. Kim, you're obviously applying water in a very frugal and targeted way. You mentioned there that you've moved from overnight irrigation to day irrigation because you've gone to a solar system to power it. Has there been a production hit from that? It's something we've only actually implemented in the last 12 months and we haven't actually had a chance to analyse that data yet if what percentage those evaporation losses from watering during the day might be. It's a bit tricky too because this year was a wetter season so we've applied less irrigation than say the year before. So it's going to take a little bit of time for us to sort of work out once we factor in seasonal differences and all that sort of thing what we think the difference could be in terms of those potential evaporation losses from irrigating during the day. So I don't have a nice juicy number I can give you, but I would definitely say that we would be losing a little bit of water to evaporation, but um, reducing our emissions was worth it for that. With your family's long history of sustainable practices across multiple sites and regions, if there was one piece of advice that you would give about vineyard irrigation, what would it be? I'd say it's probably not about irrigation, it's about soil health. 
I think the one thing that where you can make the most difference to your vineyard, the health of your vineyard, the potential retention of water and all that sort of thing is put your attention into your health of your soils and that will help in many, many, many ways, including how you manage your irrigation and how much water you need to put in. Kim Chalmers, you're very passionate about the work you do in both the wine sector and in the environmental sector. Thank you for taking time and sharing your insights with us about gaining irrigation efficiencies and joining us for this AWRI podcast. Not a worry. Thank you very much and uh, look forward to speaking one day again. The AWRI Decanted podcast is supported by Australia's grape growers and winemakers through their investment agency Wine Australia with matching funds from the Australian Government.